All right, so this is December 25th, so actually our Sunday service falls right on Christmas, Christmas Day. And at least this is where, this is the celebrated, most of the Christians in the world celebrate. I guess there's some of the Christians in the East that celebrate it on January 6th, the birth of Christ. Uh, and to be honest with you, Christmas is something I have struggled with for a large part of my life. And I was growing up as a kid, and it was the whole Santa Claus thing that was going on. And then, and then moving up here to New England, I decided I want to have a nice, low-tech, authentic New England Christmas. So we go out, and, and William would go with this. He's here. We, we go out, we go, we chop down a Christmas tree and bring it back to the house, you know, put it on top of the car, bring it back to the house. We, we have an authentic, low-tech New England Christmas. And then, to the chagrin of my children, I kind of lurched way to the other extreme. I started getting influenced by some more radical-type Christians and decided, hey, this is way too pagan, so all the Christmas tree is out, and so we just, all the traditions that we've been following, that at all, so I just kind of yanked my family around and, and, and up, uprooted them from what they were used to, and so I swung in the other direction. And then I've been, I was thinking about that after a while. I said, you know, okay, uh, what really should we be doing with Christmas? And I, and I have friends, people I respect, who are all over the map on this whole thing of what do you do with Christmas. Uh, some people look at it as what a great opportunity for evangelism because this is one of the few times the year people actually think about Jesus and you might be able to drag them out to church more easily. And so some people will just dive right into the traditions and say let's, let's just use this as an opportunity to talk about Jesus and, and not worry about all the pagan trappings that have gotten, that have glommed onto the Christmas celebration. Uh, other churches completely ignore the holiday. They, you know, where they would have the lesson on Korah's Rebellion today, just pretend that Christian, Chris, the Christmas doesn't even exist. And groups like the Puritans and the Quakers, and there are a bunch of people out there today who, who, who do, do the same thing. And, and I remember hearing and even repeating things like... <clears throat> Well, everybody knows Jesus wasn't born on December 25th, okay? And he couldn't have been because in Luke it says that the shepherds were watching their flocks by night, and of course they wouldn't be doing that in the wintertime. That sounded, that sounded plausible to me. There's an objection. And uh, also I heard people say, well, Christmas was the Christians in the early Roman Empire were piggybacking on the Roman festival of Saturnalia or Saul Invictus. It was a pagan festival, and the Christians thought, hey, all, the, all of our pagan friends are out there celebrating, and they're celebrating the light and the sun, so let's just use that as an opportunity to celebrate uh, Christmas. And then, of course, there's the Christmas tree, the Yule log, the gift exchange, Santa Claus, all kinds of other influences came in over time. So... Uh, so a lot of people just turn away from Christmas altogether. And, and so the question is, what, what, do, what do I do in my own family? What should we be doing here? And different people are certainly going to land different places on that. Um, but I had, there were two Christian authors who have a much larger impact than I do, okay, or probably ever will, who... Within the last couple of years, both of them either came out with public statements or were about to come out with public statements saying, in connection with, with uh, December 25th, everyone knows, or all knowledgeable Christians know, that Jesus wasn't actually born on December 25th. 
And I had been reading broadly and read some things that, that these other two authors hadn't. So at different times, I came back to the authors and I said, you know, there's another side of the story here. And so I presented them with the evidence for that Jesus very well may have been born on December 25th, and this was a very ancient custom. And, and both of them, actually, after looking at the evidence, and I'll put the evidence in the notes, we're not going to go into that today, but uh, both of them were actually quite surprised by the evidence that's out there to support the idea that the celebrating the birth of Christ on December 25th is actually an old practice and may have been, uh, may have been um, uh, actually correct. So, um, so my, my conclusions at this point is there is strong evidence, and again, I'll put this in the notes, and I, wanna, I don't want to be spending our time here focused on that. Today. There's strong evidence uh, for Christians in early centuries accepting December 25th as the date, at least in the West, for uh, the birth of Christ, and some of the Christians in the East would celebrate on January 6th. I think that the Russian Orthodox still do that. Maybe some other Orthodox groups and, and the, the Copts in Egypt. And uh, so, so uh, and it includes an early Christian writer, Hippolytus, who in his commentary on Daniel, and he said that uh, Jesus was born on the exact phrase was the eighth day of the calends of January. Okay, calends, guess what English word comes from the word calends? Calendar, there you go. Okay, calends. Calends is the first day of the month. So the eighth of calends is eight days before the first day of January, including January 1st is one of those eight days. So back it up, okay, and you come down to December 25th. So Apollodus is saying Jesus was born on December 25th. Uh, so according to the old Julian calendar, okay. Uh, also in the Apostolic Constitutions, I'll put this in the notes as well, which is based on late uh, second century, early third century practices in Asia Minor and in, in, in Turkey today. Uh, mentions the Christians celebrating the feast of the birth of Christ. So uh, now this doesn't negate the concerns I think are legitimate about the things that Christmas has become for a lot of people about the 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 paganism and the materialism that's crept in and, and, and taken over the practice of Christmas Christians Christmas in the minds of many people. So what I want to focus on today is. Everybody thinks they know the story of Christmas really well, you know, because it's, well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of a virgin and the three wise men and the, and, and the uh, you know, the shepherds by night from all the songs and seeing the little, little crush scenes, things like that. But I want to take a kind of an adult look at this and, and look at some things that may have, may have skipped your notice before. And I want to also answer some questions that, critics have thrown at the Christians and also the Christians have struggled with over the centuries. For example, if you read the account in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 1 and 2, there are some differences there. The genealogies are different. The details are different. And so people will say, wait a minute, there's a, there's a contradiction here. I want to take a look at that. And um, also, I want to take advantage of some of the things that we've studied over the last few years in the Old Testament, which really tie into a deeper appreciation of this story. 
and then hopefully also pull out some practical lessons for us because it's not just shouldn't be just a history lesson or just about the prophecies but also also there should be something practical for us to get in in our own lives and i think we don't hear jesus teaching anything in matthew 1 and 2 or in luke 1 and 2 but there's some other great heroes of faith that we can learn a lot from just as we learn wonderful things from the old testament particularly mary Mary, uh, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Joseph, Gabriel, the shepherds. There's, there's good things to learn in this story, which I think will help us in our own, our own spiritual walk. So, so we have to start with Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to ask a question that some people will be able to answer very easily, and other people are going to maybe wrestle with a little bit here. Matthew chapter 1, start off verses 1 and 2. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then it goes through the genealogy after that. And it concludes in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. From the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. So it outlines the, the, the genealogy going down through Joseph, the husband of Mary. So, what's the first thing we learn in the gospel? Matthew's the first gospel. What's the first thing we learn in the first gospel about Jesus? He's descended from David. That's the first thing you learn. All right? Gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. First thing, he's the son of David. Guess how many times David is mentioned? Let's just take Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2, which is where you have the whole account of the, the nativity and the birth of Christ. How many times do you think David... King David is mentioned in those two chapters. I counted 12 times. He's mentioned 12. He's all over the place in the beginning of the story of Jesus. So, question. Why such a strong emphasis on David? Why, do, why does it lead off? Why does the story lead off with saying that he's the son of David? Some people may know and some people uh, may, may uh, be wondering, scratching their heads about this. But actually, this is an ancient question. I got this, this book. Eusebius of Caesarea, Gospel Problems and Solutions. Okay, this book was just published. It just came. The English translation just came out about 12 years ago. So this was Eusebius is was Bishop of Caesarea in the early 300s. So somebody finally got around to translating in English. And this Eusebius was like the Bible answer man of his day. In addition to being a historian, so people would ask him all the tough questions. And we only have 20 of the questions that people asked him, but fortunately 16 of them have to do with the birth of Christ and those first couple of chapters. So people asked, some of the questions that, that I wrestle with are the same things that people were asking Eusebius, whatever, 1,700 years ago, uh, including why the big emphasis on David, why does it start with, with uh, why does the story start with Jesus Christ, the son of David. And so this is from, Stephanus had, uh, I think, 16 questions. This is question number five. So this is Eusebius answering the question to Stephanus. And the question is, the Stephanus asks, why does Matthew give precedence to David over Abraham in the words, the book of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham? Why does David get top billing in this story here? And here's Eusebius's answer. And this may be familiar to some of us who've been following along with things that we've studied over the, over the last few years. So, Eusebius replied, it's because it was to David first and only to him that a prophecy was given, confirmed by an oath 
that the Christ's birth was, in physical terms, from him. So, what is Eusebius referring to there? He's referring to, there are four places that I that jump, jump out right automatically from, from the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and uh, 1 Chronicles 17. This is where David says, I'm living in a, in a house of cedar and the ark of God. Is, is, in a, is in a tabernacle. It's basically, it's like a cloth tent-like structure. And he says, what's wrong with this? I want to build a temple for the Lord. And Nathan says, good idea. And then the Lord comes to Nathan at night and says, bad idea. Uh, don't do that. And he gives David some different direction, including an amazing prophecy that's in, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in First Chronicles 17. Now I'm gonna. We usually do the Second Samuel 7. So I'm gonna do the First Chronicles 17 one. There's a reason for that. Okay. They say the same thing, but the translators do it differently in the, in the Orthodox Bible. So First First Chronicles 17. So this is what you. This is Eusebius says. This is why. This is why it's the story starts with David and actually ties into both. The the, the 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 introduction to the life of Jesus in Matthew and in Luke. So, First Chronicles seventeen. So let's jump down to verse eleven. So, so Nathan is told, "Go and tell David this." First Chronicles 17, 11. It shall be when your days are fulfilled and you shall be laid to rest with your fathers that I will set up your seed after you. Literally, it's raise up your seed after you in the Septuagint. He who will be out of your belly, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy from him as I took it from those who were before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. His throne shall be established forever. So Nathan spoke to David according to all these words and according to to this vision. We talked about this when we went through Acts chapter 2. Peter's alluding to this prophecy. So it's in 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17, and then it's repeated. This promise to David is confirmed and repeated where it's God says, I swear on an oath that I'm going to keep this promise in Psalm 89 and in Psalm 132. Let's turn to Psalm 132. And if you have a Bible based on the Septuagint, it's Psalm 131. Psalm 132, or I'll read from the Septuagint where it says in Psalm 131, Remember David, O Lord, and all his meekness, how he swore to the Lord, how he vowed to the God of Jacob, I shall not enter my dwelling, I shall not recline on my bed, I shall not close my eyes in sleep, nor my eyelids for dozing, nor give rest to my temples until I find a place for the Lord a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, 
We found it in the plains of the wood. Let us enter into his tabernacles. Let us worship at the place where his feet stood. Arise, O Lord, in your rest, you in the ark of your holiness. Your priests shall clothe themselves in righteousness. Your saints shall greatly rejoice. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away from your face from the face of your anointed. The Lord swore to David this truth, and he shall not reject it. I shall set upon your throne one from the fruit of your loins. Actually, literally, it's from your belly. It's the same place as it was in 1 Chronicles 17. If your sons keep my covenant and these testimonies, I shall teach them. Then their sons, then their sons shall sit upon your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He chose her for his dwelling. This is my place of rest unto ages of ages. There I shall dwell, for I have chosen her. Blessing, I shall bless her provision. I shall satisfy her poor with bread. I shall clothe her priests with salvation. Her saints shall rejoice exceedingly with great joy. There I shall cause to spring up a horn for David. There I prepared my lamp for my anointed. His enemies I shall clothe with shame. Upon him shall my sanctification flourish. A couple of comments here, as I mentioned before. Um, it says he will literally raise him up. It says, it says he's going to raise him up. And uh, uh, Ephrathah here is Bethlehem. We know that from Genesis 35, 19 in the, the death of Rachel. So it speaks of worshiping in the place where his feet stood in connection with that. It recalls David's desire to build the temple. David has an urgency about that. <clears throat> and it speaks in two places, verse 10 and verse 17, about the anointed one. The anointed one is the Christ. So if you're reading it in the, in the, in the Septuagint, it's Christos. It's the same, same word as Christ in the New Testament. So it speaks of the son of David and the Christ, the anointed one in this passage here. Uh, <clears throat> so... Let's, let's continue in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. So this is the backdrop for the reason why it's so important to explain the genealogy goes right back to David. He is the descendant of David. He's the son of David. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they became together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here, verse 18, Mary's pregnant. And we've missed an important part of the story. Actually, the account in Luke talks about before she gets pregnant. So let's, let's pause this and go into the account in Luke which gives the events that happen right before verse 18. Gospel of Luke begins, now remember John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus, and so the story of Luke begins with the announcement to Zechariah the father of John the Baptist, that he is going to have a son. So this is 9 plus 6 is 15 months before the birth of Jesus. That this starts off, Luke chapter 1 and verse, uh, verse 5. 
There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So, um, just think about the description here of, of Zechariah and Elizabeth. You know, there's a lot of people who believe that we're totally depraved, that there's nothing good in us, and that after the fall of Adam, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Zechariah and Elizabeth are described here as both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. So there have been some really good people in, in, in history, and, and these are two of them. So people may take, want to take pot shots at, at Zechariah. You know, he, he didn't do a perfect job in the next chapter here, but I'm not going to criticize the guy. He's pretty good. So... Luke chapter 1 and verse 8, let's continue. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the customs of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside of the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you should call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. That was not a good answer. Verse 19. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stand in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you'll be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be filled in their own time. And the people waited for Zechariah and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, he departed to his own house. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, The Lord has dealt with me in the days he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. So, uh... I told you that we'd uh, we touch on the book of Numbers here. So this, it's, it says that, that that he would not take wine uh, and strong drink for birth. We talked about that. Thing. I said I think that's in uh, Numbers chapter six. This is the Nazarite vow. So he's is kind of kind of similar to that. And 
It says, the angel says, he will turn the heart of the fathers, the children, the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this is a quote from the end of Malachi, which talks about the Lord would send Elijah before the, the great and awesome or powerful and terrible day of the Lord. So that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord is another prophecy. And the angel says he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah, which is obviously going to be to prepare the way for the Lord. So it's from the end of, it's, it's, it's following, the fulfilling a prophecy at the end of Malachi, and I think also from Isaiah chapter 40, the one who's going to be crying out in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. So it's a fulfillment of another promise of God that he's explaining. He's going to prepare the way for the Lord. There's one is greater who's going to be coming after him. And Zechariah clearly later on uh, gets the significance of that. Now, this, this is this where all comes together in Luke 1.26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and consider what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth the Son, and shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can, I, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And now this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So, um, some of us in the room from a Catholic background, you may recognize one of the lines here from the greeting of, of Gabriel. Hail Mary. Okay. Hail Mary. Uh, blessed. Uh, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. So this is, this is from the Catholics here in, in the room here. So maybe smiling at that. Uh, one of the first lines of scripture I ever learned as a child in the Catholic Church. So, although she is a virgin, she's going to conceive and give birth to a son. And this is the one who's going to fulfill the promises we just read in 1 Chronicles 17 that were made a thousand years before. He will inherit the throne of his father David. He will reign forever. His kingdom will have no end. And he shall be called the Son of God. That's what one of the part of the promise was that he, he would be reign over the kingdom that would never end. That uh, he would build he would build the temple that would never be destroyed. And he would be called. Uh, God says, "I will be his father, and he will be my son." So he says he's going to be called, called the Son of God because the Holy Spirit will come over you. So. Um, 
Stephanus asked Eusebius about this, this story also. He's trying, to, he's trying to sort this out. What's this, what's this all about? Why does he say that, the, why does the angel say he's going to inherit the throne of David? What is that all about? Here's Eusebius' answer. This is to, to Stephanus' response number 15. So Eusebius says, Therefore, the throne about which the great angel Gabriel gives the virgin the good news, prophesying that it will be given to the one who is the born of her, is the very same throne that God swore to give David, the throne which is as the days of heaven, as the sun before God, as the moon set for eternity. I believe that's from Psalm 89. With the whole nation praying for it to be established. Gabriel is saying that the one who is to be born of the virgin will receive the throne of David. That is to say, the throne promised to David, though not by any means actually given to him yet, the heavenly throne, the one lasting to eternity. This then was the actual fulfillment of the greatest prophecy delivered to David, awaited by the whole people and fulfilled in our Savior Jesus Christ. Gabriel, as Gabriel said, okay, I have lost the notes for the entire rest of the lesson that I was going to give, so we'll see, we'll see how I do here. Okay, this is interesting. Uh, let me just check one more thing. No, didn't print. So let's take a look at the promises that were made here. So this was going to be the one who would fulfill the promise made to David a thousand years beforehand. And Mary was told he shall be given the name Jesus. Why was he? Why was the, the angel so specific? In Matthew chapter 1, it says that... that uh, that uh, Joseph was told the same thing. He'd be given the name Jesus. Why would he be given the name Jesus? We discussed that in the book of Numbers, and we're going through Numbers chapter 13. Who was it whose name was changed to Jesus in Greek? It was Hosea, the son of Nun, one of the 12 spies, who Moses changed his name to Jesus. And what is the significance of that? The name being changed to Jesus. This is the one who would finish the job begun by Moses. He is the one. Moses could only take him so far. He is the one who would lead the people all the way into the promised land. As it says in the end of Numbers, I think it's Numbers chapter 27 or 28, that uh, when Moses is about to die on Mount Nebo, he is concerned about the people, and he says, I don't want these people to be like sheep without a shepherd. And so the Lord says, lay your hands on Jesus. He'll take care of it. And of course, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, that's exactly what Jesus says, that, that he, he's concerned that the people would be like sheep without a shepherd, that he is the good shepherd who's going to fulfill that. So uh, the, the next question here is uh, Mary is a virgin and so she wants to know how in the world is this going to happen that I'm going to be giving birth to a son because I am a virgin and the angel's response here 
to me is very moving. He says, look, the Holy Spirit's going to do this. And then, and then his closing statement, this is the ultimate closer here. His closing statement is, for nothing is impossible for God. Okay, how can you argue with that? If you understand who God is, that he can do anything, nothing is impossible for him. If he can part the Red Sea, he can raise Jesus from the dead, he can speak the universe into existence, he can stop the sun in the sky, nothing is impossible for God. For people who want to attack the authority of Scripture, one of the first things they go after is virgin birth, because you can believe in the virgin birth, you can believe any miracle, okay? So you've got to attack and undermine the faith in the virgin birth, you have to undermine the faith in the miracles. But what the angel said, it's an incredible statement, nothing is impossible for God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Mary did. Mary believed it, and Gabriel certainly believed it. Okay, do you believe nothing is impossible for God? So this isn't, this isn't positive thinking. This is understanding the nature of God and who God is. If God wants to do something, no one and nothing can stop him from do that. He, can, he created the laws of the universe, and he can suspend them anytime he wants to. And Mary's response is classic. She says, behold the maidservant of the Lord. It's basically, whatever God's will is, I'll do it. I think of when Jesus says in the daily prayer, give us today our daily bread, that's something we should obviously be praying every single day because we're just praying for the bread for today. In Matthew 6, if we're going to pray the daily prayer, part of the daily prayer is, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done, God. Praying for God's will to be done. So, This is, to me, one of the greatest examples of somebody who embodied that spirit and asking, may God's will be done. If this is what God wants, may it be done to your maidservant. This is a a, a beautiful example of faith. I was raised in a Roman Catholic church, and I would say, you know, the emphasis on Mary is, is, it's over the top. I mean, there are statues of Mary. People are praying to Mary. They pray to Mary more than they pray to Jesus uh, a lot of times. If somebody's in big trouble, they bypass Jesus and go to Mary. They think, well, he's got an end. He's got, he's got, he's got. so people are Catholic know what I'm talking about here, okay? And Mary is given all these incredible titles. She is the mother of God. She's this, that, and the other. So queen, queen of heaven, there's so much that's, that's raised up about Mary. However, in the account here in Luke, Let's not swing to the other extreme. Mary is a wonderful example of faith and humility and just belief in God. Yeah, anything's impossible with God. If he says, I'm a virgin, and he says, I'm going to have a baby, he's going to do it. And may, may, may the, uh, the Lord's will be done. Behold, may so the Lord. And Elizabeth later on says that you will be, that, that, that all nations will consider you to be, to be, to be blessed. blessed. Blessed are you among women. And, and uh, uh, we can think of Mary as someone who is blessed by God, is a wonderful example of faith to follow and imitate. Um, the other thing is, just a few thoughts about the virgin birth. Okay? Uh, 
In Luke's gospel, it says that Jesus is born a virgin. Matthew's gospel it says that he's born a virgin. Doesn't mention it in elsewhere in Scripture, uh, except in the prophecies. In Matthew's gospel, there is the quote from uh, Isaiah chapter seven and verse fourteen. Which let's turn to Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, And she will bring forth the Son. You call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. So this is a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Very famous prophecy. It's a quote from the Septuagint. And the, and the Masoretic text and the Hebrew scriptures that people have today, what it says is the young women will be with child. Uh, Irenaeus and against heresies. And I'll, I'll put the reference here. Uh, he's taking issue with the Jews of his day, and he's taunting them about this. It says in, in the Septuagint, it says the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. It says, this is the sign I will have. And the Jews are, are reading it in their translation. They're saying the young woman will be with child. And Irenaeus taunts them. He says, what kind of a sign is that to say the young woman will be with child? He said, this is what happens all the time. It's like saying, saying the sun's going to come up. The sun's rising in the east. That's not a sign. The sign is something that's different, that's great, that never happens. And, and that's why the, the prophecy in Isaiah 7.14, the Septuagint, is correct. This is a virgin. This is a miracle. This is a sign of, from God that something new is, is about to take place here. Are there any other prophecies that you can think of about the virgin birth other than Isaiah 7.14? Not only is it in the New Testament, but I believe it's contained in the Old Testament as well. Can you think of any? Daniel, Daniel. Daniel. Okay, that's a good. That's a good one. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I'll, I'll talk about that one. Daniel chapter two. There's a prophecy that Irenaeus and against heresies said he pointed to as foreshadowing the the virgin birth of Christ. One I think of first one I think of is in Genesis three, where the the where Mary is told that the that her seed the one to come from her will crush the head of satan and it doesn't say he doesn't say that to to adam and eve he says it only to eve that it would be the one who would come from her from the woman be it the case okay another another example adam pointed out in daniel chapter 2 daniel chapter 2 one of the first prophecies I learned about Jesus and the kingdom of God was the, sta- the, the, the story of the four-part statue. And it says, A rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, falls on the feet of the statue and smashes it and all blows away as dust. And Irenaeus makes a point. He says, think about that. You know, there are, there are a number of examples in the scriptures where Christ is referred to as a rock, and this is one of them. But he's described as the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. And he says this is a perfect portrayal of the divinity cut out of the rock, the rock that's cut out of a mountain, begotten of the Father, but not by human hands. He's not coming about by normal human agency. This is by the power of God. This is by the Holy Spirit. So he points to to that as foreshadowing the virgin birth of Christ. 
And then, and then there's another one here, which I, I slipped in here on you in First Chronicles 17. It says that the, the, that the king to come in the future who would descend from David would come from his belly. And I remember reading this to my wife Allison a few years ago. And she said, hmm, that sounds a little strange, coming from the man's belly. That doesn't sound quite anatomically correct. And actually, a, a number of translators try to fix the problem by saying, you know, some other, uh, some other part, of his, part of his body rather than his belly, because you would never say that about a man. That it would come from his loins or his, or his something, something else, but you would never say that about a man. However, Irenaeus says... He says that was there for a reason. It says it comes from the belly of David, which is it's the same thing in, uh, in Luke where Elizabeth says, blessed is the fruit of your, basically it's belly. It's the same exact word as in, as in the Septuagint in that, in that place there. So it's, 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 the, it's the lower abdominal area, which would include the womb. Totally appropriate from that. The same word where in Jonah, where it talks about... <clears throat> Uh, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the of the whale. So it's the same same word. He's in the belly of the ship. So it, it, it word means belly. So you would never say that about a man that it's going to come from his belly, except that Irenaeus says it was there on purpose, pointing to the fact that it would be from a woman descended from uh, from David that that, that the, the Savior would come. Okay, it's a prophecy about that. Now, some may have a question at this point. Say, wait a minute. The genealogy in Matthew showing the descent from David goes down to Joseph, not to Mary. The genealogy in Luke goes down to Joseph, not to Mary. Say, wait a minute. Why do we have the genealogies? of Joseph, but not Mary. And Eusebius was, was asked this question as well. So fortunately, he answered the question. He gave two really good answers to it. He said, well, first of all, he said, back under the law of Moses, Jewish men were supposed to marry women from the same tribe. Okay? They didn't always do that, but they're supposed to marry women from the same tribe. You keep the inheritance straight because it gets really messy if you don't do that because the inheritance of land is by tribe. So he said, I said, well, okay, you know, that may, you know, maybe that makes a certain amount of sense, but then he pointed something else out to me that I didn't realize. Let's turn back to Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> In verse 32, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. <clears throat> Think about that. Mary's a virgin, and, and the angel says, Oh, he's going to get the throne of his father David. That statement only makes sense if Mary herself is descended from David. Otherwise, it makes no sense whatsoever. So the angel Gabriel is speaking to Mary, understanding that she had to be descended from David as well, which she obviously understood herself. So Mary and Joseph are both descended from David. We have the genealogy of Joseph that's given there. But they're both descended 
from David. Okay. Um, Let's pick it up in verse 39 of Luke chapter 1. Now Mary rose in those days and went to the hill crunchy with haste to the city of Judah and entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary... The baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she spoke out in a loud voice, saying, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Same word for belly. But this, but why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And then Mary exalts God in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. It's a wonderful prayer which gives you insight into the spiritual heart of Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in the God of my Savior. He's regarded the lowly slate of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, holy is in his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. So... What do you learn about Mary's, what makes her tick spiritually? Why was she able, the one who was able to say, may it be done according to your will? Well, I think that one thing here is she believes that God keeps his promises. She sees God as a faithful, promise-keeping God. That's the first thing I notice. She magnifies God and praises God. And then the other thing that, that really jumped out at me in reading it through at this time is... Mary sees the importance of the fear of God. She makes a statement, His mercy is on those who fear Him from generation to generation. Mary had a holy fear of God. Fear of God is a good thing. Peter says, Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Jesus in Matthew 10 said, Don't fear people who can kill the body and can't do anything else. You need to fear the one who can throw body and spirit into the fire of hell. That's the one you need to fear. You need to fear his father. So uh, uh, Mary had a fear of God. You think about another young woman who was faced in a, in, a, in a challenging situation, Eve, at the very beginning. And it was a young a young virgin who who's, was tempted by Satan really because she had a lack of fear of God, I think. Because when Satan, Satan could worm his way into her and, and talk her into going along with him and painting God to be the bad guy in the story and, and pulled her off course. Mary was steadfast because she had a fear of God. So she, to me, she's a wonderful example, and she holds that out, that he, for, for people of all generations who fear him. Um, so Elizabeth's time is fulfilled. She gives birth to her son John. Zacharias uh, opens his mouth in praise. His speech is restored. And most of his 
most of his praise is directed not at his son, but as the one his son is sent to pave the way for. That he holds him up, the, uh, uh, the one who will be the light that, that everyone is looking forward to. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, the birth of Jesus. It came to pass in those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her birth brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid in the manger because there was no room for him at the inn. Uh, so this is the birth of Jesus. He goes to Bethlehem, which is also recorded in Matthew chapter 1. And you remember the story with the, the, the story of the three wise men who come and they're looking for the one who's been born king of the east, king, king of the Jews. They come from the east and they're, they're told... Herod is told that, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem because that's what it says in Micah chapter 5, that you, Bethlehem, are, are the, the Bethlehem, the city of David. Let's turn there, Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, 1, maybe numbering a little differently in some other Bibles here. This is, and you, O Bethlehem, house of Ephrathah, Though you are fewest in number among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler of Israel. His goings forth were from the beginning, even from everlasting. So this is the the sense is that this ruler is going to have his origins from eternity, from everlasting. That this points this also points the divinity of Christ that he was pre-existing before all things. So this is the the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem in the account in um, in, uh, the account in Matthew. It talks about how after Jesus is born in Bethlehem that the Magi, the wise men, come from the east and that Herod, uh, Herod wants him killed and that the wise men depart, go a different direction, and then Herod pronounces an edict to have all the baby boys killed and uh, an angel intervenes and tells Joseph and Mary to go to Egypt to escape the, the, the king who wants to kill them. So in Luke, so what happened after Jesus was born? And I, I remember growing up in my grandmother's house, there would be a little creche scene. Okay, maybe you're, some of you are familiar with this. And there's the, you know, there's the manger there's the three wise men, there's the shepherds coming in from the flocks, and there's the star overhead. Okay, all these things are kind of together, and that's how I pictured it in my mind. But you think about that, that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So how do you, how do you fit these things together? Well, Eusebius said, well, actually what happened was the two stories, the story of the magi happened a while after the story of the shepherds. So that so Jesus is born in a manger. The the shepherds come, and uh, they're they're guarding their flocks by night. And you know you can people. It's pretty it's pretty warm in that part of the world. So 
shepherds were watching their flocks at night throughout the year. It's not just the winter time doesn't preclude them from doing that. So that says nothing about the time of year that it happened. But the, the shepherds come there to, to, uh, to, to, to see the one who's been born, the king of the Jews. And then only sometime later, uh, Mary and Joseph are back in Jerusalem, and then then the uh, the uh, the three magi come and present the gifts. So these are they're two different stories. One is considerably after the other one. So let's continue in the story in Luke, Luke chapter two, verse eight. Now there were this in, in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were greatly afraid. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, for which will be all the people. For there is born to you in this day of the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Suddenly there was an angel, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to the Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came and made haste and found Mary and Joseph with a babe lying in the manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart, then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they'd heard and seen, and it was told of them. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And then they go on to the temple after that. So you see, there's the whole story about Jerusalem and the temple, which takes place, according to Eusebius, this takes place, all takes place before the story of the Magi, which is sometime later. So uh, just an opportunity for us to all stop and reflect on the birth of Jesus. And a few things that, that I encourage us for takeaways from this story. One is that God always keeps his promises. He made a promise to David. It was fulfilled a thousand years later. Okay, so... God may be not on the timetable that we want him to, but God is a faithful God. He always keeps his promises, number one. Number two is that the Old Testament is saturated with prophecies and foreshadowings. Even about the virgin birth of Christ, it's not just one prophecy. There are many prophecies to to build our faith and strengthen our faith. So people who say, no, this was just faked in to match Isaiah chapter 7 14. There are several prophecies that talk about the virgin birth of Christ. And then I think about the faith of Mary. Some wonderful lessons there. Number one, the, the statement by Gabriel this is the only thing you take away from today. Nothing is impossible for God. Process that. Get that. If you understand who God is, that's not a stretch. He created the universe from nothing. Nothing is impossible for God. He can do anything. Okay? And then the other thing, Mary said that from generation to generation, His grace is on those who fear Him. Let us 
walk in the footsteps of Mary and fear God and ask him to do with us whatever he wants to do, whichever is going to accomplish his will and his greater purpose in our lives. Amen.